Hello, everyone, and welcome into this edition of the Sports Detective Podcast, hosted by yours truly. And today we are going to talk about Barry Bonds and how he became a baseball prodigy and how he slowly, over the course of his long career, turned into baseball's biggest villain. And before we start this, just wanted to let you guys know this is the part one of the Barry Bonds two-parter two parts of the Barry Bonds story this one we are going to talk about his childhood for part of it and how he got to college his time with the Pittsburgh Pirates and then how he ultimately went to San Francisco I just wanted to give you a little bit of an intro so you know what's talking about part two is going to focus heavily on his steroid use this isn't going to be the long gone summer where they only talk about hey that whole like hour and a half documentary you saw before this it was all fake because they use steroids but we're only going to talk about that for like 10 minutes at the end so i just want to let you know part two will be about the steroids without further ado here is my narrative part one barry bonds barry bonds is the most accomplished baseball player in the history of the sport he is the home run king. He compiled 762 home runs in his 22-year career. In 2001, he even broke Mark McGuire's single-season home run record with an eye-popping 73 long balls. Barry also holds the record for most career walks, most career intentional walks, and he is the only player in baseball history to finish his career with over 500 home runs and 500 stolen bases. If all of that wasn't enough, he also went to 14 All-Star games, won seven gold gloves, has 12 silver sluggers, won two batting titles, and has a record-breaking seven MVP trophies. But many look at Barry Bond's career as artificial and tainted, that his home run record should be marked with an asterisk, indicating that his record shouldn't count on the fact that Bonds had more drugs and hormones in his system than a racehorse during the latter part of his career. The steroid era is the reason that many former players have and are going to miss out on baseball's Hall of Fame including Bonds, who has missed the cut on his first eight years on the ballot. But Barry Bonds is different from the other steroid users. He didn't need PEDs to become great. He already was great. The best player in baseball, for a matter of fact. Taking an HGH cocktail of supplements propelled Bonds from being one of the greatest players to ever live to the greatest player to ever live. Bonds was never considered to be a well-liked guy, if not just plain hated by his teammates and peers. He would regularly scowl at the media. He was moody. You never knew which form of Barry you were going to get on a day-to-day -day basis. But steroids turned Barry from being unliked into being the sport's biggest villain. He went from being a great player to an all-time great, to testifying in front of Supreme Court, to the home run champion, to being charged with perjury, and then convicted of perjury, only to have his case thrown out due to a court mistrial. Over the course of his career, he went from a normal-sized head to an enlarged melon. His mistress even had to testify in court that his testicles shrank and that they were the size of peanuts. But to understand how Barry Bonds became the disgraced baseball legend that he is today, you have to go back to Bonds' childhood. Barry Bonds was born to be an athlete. His uncle was a college football player who ended up getting drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. 
His aunt, Rosie Bonds, was a U.S. record holder for the 80-meter hurdles and competed in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. His distant cousin was Reggie Jackson, the New York Yankees slugger, who was nicknamed Mr. October, and his dad was Bobby Bonds, a three-time All-Star and a career journeyman. Bobby was a gifted athlete, talented at baseball but also troubled. Just like his father, Bobby struggled with alcoholism for most of his life. Starting in high school, Bobby would bring bottles of wine and beer to sporting events. His addiction didn't affect his performance right away. Bobby excelled at sports, married his high school sweetheart at the age of 17, and became a father in 1964, which was the same year that he started his professional baseball career. Bobby was signed with the Giants right out of high school. He was going to be assigned to a minor league team in North Carolina for a few years, and then he moved up to the big leagues when Willie Mays only had a few years left. After he was finally called up, Bobby was finally in the big leagues, where he would go back to his hometown and family in San Francisco. In San Francisco, Willie Mays took Bobby under his wing and decided to mentor the young star. Willie Mays was the league's prominent black star of the era. By the end of his career, Mays was mad. Mad that he thought the Giants were ripping him off in contract negotiations. Mad that he wasn't embraced by the people of San Francisco. He put up a wall around himself. He wouldn't let anyone into his inner circle. He thought no one should be messing with his privacy. However, Willie Mays let Bobby Bonds inside his wall because he saw a little bit of himself in the young outfielder, and partly because he resented the people that were dubbing Bonds as the next Willie Mays. Bobby also hated the tag of being dubbed the next Willie Mays. Willie should have gotten more respect, and Bobby didn't want the pressure. Growing up in and around the San Francisco clubhouse, Barry admired his father's mentor. Willie Mays took Barry under his wing and eventually was named his godfather. Barry learned from Willie. He absorbed how Mays would make highlight catches in center field, how he hustled around the base path, how he hit home runs that left teammates and fans in awe of his greatness. However, Barry also picked up some of Willie Mays' bad habits. He watched as Willie would blow off the media, ignore his teammates, and make sarcastic jokes that were more mean than funny. How Mays would get away with it was because he was a walking baseball god. Barry soaked it all in. Growing up, Bobby wasn't a good father to Barry. He would rarely show up to any of Barry's games, and if he did, he would sit in the back so he could drink in peace. Barry spent a lot of his childhood at Candlestick Park with his dad, but if it was up to Barry, he would have rather stayed at home with his mom. When Barry was 10, Bobby was traded to the Yankees. He had a bad reputation. He was trouble for the Giants off the field. He was involved in a drunk driving incident that gave him jail time. He was also alleged to have affairs with women in other big league cities. Bobby's drinking and marriage problems had an impact on Barry's life. As Barry got older, it was easy to see that he inherited Bobby's athletic and baseball genes. At a young age, he was known as Bobby's Boy, a title that Barry hated, and he would hate it even more if you misspoke and called him Bobby. In high school, Barry was becoming a good basketball player and a great baseball player. Meanwhile, Bobby was being traded from team to team, Everyone was aware of his drinking problems. Teammates would smell the alcohol in his breath in the batting cage. Even though there was two instances of Bobby's drunk driving, other times Bobby would give officers an autograph in exchange for being let home freely. Other times Bobby's agent would convince people to keep Bobby's name out of the news. Even in high school, Barry knew he could do things and get away with it when other students couldn't. He would cheat on tests, not try at practice, humiliate coaches and teammates. 
He could even get away with a crime on school grounds, and no one would care. At a basketball practice, a fellow teammate was annoying Barry. While guarding Bonds, the other kid was shoving Barry and poking him in his side. Cut it out! Bonds barked at the kid. The student ignored Barry and kept badgering him. But Barry turned around, punched his classmate in the face with a left hook that fractured the kid's jaw. The kid had to spend the next four weeks with his jaw wired shut, eating meals through a straw. Barry Bonds was unpunished. The kid filed assault charges with Barry, but they settled out of court. Neither Barry's mom or Bobby made Barry apologize for his actions. It was a lesson that stayed true for Barry's life. If you were really good at something, you can get away with things and you won't get punished. By Barry's junior season, scouts began attending his games, but it was no use. Barry Bonds had his eyes set on going to Arizona State where he would play college baseball. Barry was good enough in high school to be drafted by the Giants in the second round. But getting drafted by his father's team didn't excite Barry. He was going to college. When Barry arrived at Arizona State, it was assumed that the legendary coach Jim Brock would whip Barry into submission. He was a no-nonsense type of coach who wouldn't stand for the cockiness or lack of effort. Many of his former players describe Brock as mean and don't speak fondly of him. He treated everyone the same except when Barry Bonds arrived on campus. Brock embraced Bonds. He was infatuated by the young man's talent and let Barry get away with whatever Barry wanted to do. Sure, Barry was a cocky, annoying asshole, but he had a mystical talent. Sure, he could have disciplined Barry and treated him like any other player, but he didn't want to upset Barry because what Barry did on the field outweighed how much he sucked off of it. He didn't know how much other teammates hated him, mostly because Barry lacked social skills and was unable to pick up on such a thing. He was self-centered and only wanted to talk about Barry. He would brag about all the money he turned down to go to college and how his dad was a pro. Bobby would even fly into Tempe and attend practices sometimes sober and sometimes drunk. Bobby made it clear to Brock that Barry would not take hitting instructions from the ASU hitting coach. Barry would swing the bat Bobby's way. Most of his teammates thought Barry was a spoiled brat, which he was but he was a talented Pratt. His freshman season, he led the team in home runs. Barry would arrive late to practices, not focus during batting practice, and wouldn't hustle in the outfield, which enraged pitchers. He took an ASU calling card and rang up several hundred dollars on it. After an incident where Barry didn't show up on time for curfew during a road trip, he refused to run for his punishment, thinking he was above everybody. You cannot punish Barry Bonds. However, Bonds ended up being suspended by Brock for this incident. After the trip, Brock decided to confront his team over the Barry Bonds cloud hovering over them. A team meeting was held without Bonds in attendance. According to Jeff Perlman's book, Love Me, Hate Me, Brock said this in the meeting. It's been brought to my attention that a lot of you think Barry is causing more harm than good, and I don't believe I can excuse his actions any longer. So here's the deal. I'm going to give you boys the authority to vote on Barry's future. Do you want him to continue on the team, or do you want to kick him off? Keep in mind, our ultimate goal here is to win a championship, and he's obviously a big part of that, but it's your decision. But it wasn't actually their decision. Brock believed the team would come to their senses and vote to keep Barry on the team because they wanted to win, and they would be able to tolerate the Barry Bonds migraine every once in a while. Brock's plan was for the team to vote in majority to keep Barry, but instead, all but two members, only two guys on the Arizona State baseball team voted to keep Barry on the team. The rest wanted him out.
But then Jim Brock went back on his statement from earlier and said that he couldn't kick Barry off the team since the vote wasn't unanimous. After his junior season at Arizona State, Bonds decided to go pro. A lot of teams were concerned about the prospect's poor attitude, but they all marveled at the athletic outfielder that was oozing with unlimited offensive potential. Luckily, the Pirates were able to draft Barry Bonds with the sixth pick in the draft. He was joining a franchise that had been dropped in the toilet since they won the World Series in 1979. By the time Barry got into the majors, his relationship with his dad had improved tremendously. Bobby knew what it was like to be a hotshot rookie. Barry would regularly call his dad for advice on how Barry could excel at the big leagues. Barry started out his major league career playing in center field, a position that Barry loved being able to play. His favorite player Mickey Mantle and his godfather Willie Mays played center. Barry wanted to follow in their footsteps. There was only one problem. Barry was an awful center fielder. He would ignore his manager Jim Leland's demands to play deep. The one bad part about Barry's game was that he had a weak arm. He could never muster up the strength it would take to throw someone out from deep in the outfield. So Barry would play shallow. This allowed for balls to soar over his head. Pitchers would give up more hits and fume when Barry wouldn't hustle for the fly balls. He cared more about not looking bad than actually winning a game. Luckily for Barry's sake, and every team he played on in the future, the Pirates signed a new center fielder and shifted Barry to left field. Off the field, Barry was infuriating to be around. At bars, Barry refused to pay for drinks, simply for the fact that he was Barry Bonds. The veterans welcomed him, but he gave them the cold shoulder. He walked by teammates without even acknowledging them. Even though Barry was abrasive, arrogant, and sometimes mean, he had some moments when he would show everyone a softer side that many had never seen before. He responded to a coach's invitation to be a part of a baseball clinic. The morning of the event, it was snowing outside. The coach thought no way Barry would show, but to his surprise, Barry was the first one to show up, and he was the ultimate baseball idol. He stayed for hours signing autographs and handing out apparel, as well as telling baseball stories to all of the young kids. Moments like these made people think, is there a nicer side to Barry Bonds after all? In his second big league season, Bonds began to establish himself as a good pro, hitting 25 home runs and stealing 32 bases. The better Barry did on the field, the worse he treated the media. It may have stemmed when Barry was repeatedly called Bobby in newspapers. In reports, or even in stadiums he walked to the plate, he hated being called Bobby. He wanted to etch his own identity into baseball, not just be the son of a big leaguer. He slowly was becoming the face of the Pirates. With Bobby Benilla and Andy Van Slyke, they had one of the best outfields in the MLB. If there was one thing that Pirates knew, that the rise of Barry Bonds was vital to their success. His sophomore season also marked off big life events for Bonds. Meeting and marrying his first life, he met at a Montreal strip club. She was a bartender, so don't worry about him marrying a stripper. But only after five months of dating, she moved in with Bonds and then married him after only five months. His third season marked the year Barry began to trust his coaches and actually give a crap on defense. He decided to protect the left field line, prohibiting batters from getting doubles. His arm was still mediocre, but he started trying. The real breakthrough with Bonds on defense was when his teammate and center fielder, Andy Van Slyke, earned a gold glove at the conclusion of the 88 season. Barry saw the award and told Van Slyke, next year, I'm going to win me one of those. This was an impressive thing about Barry Bonds. When he put his mind to something, he would accomplish it. 
Instead of being good, Barry worked harder and became great. In 1990, Bonds earned his first gold glove and proceeded to win the award for the next seven seasons. As Bonds garnered more attention and fame, the more he distanced himself from the team. He began taking long naps before games, lounging on the clubhouse sofa, sometimes until five minutes just before the start. Barry was sending the message to his teammates, go ahead and take BP, go ahead and stretch, go do your sprints, I'm Barry Bonds, and I don't need to do that to succeed. Barry Bonds was socially awkward. He couldn't read social cues, nor could he tell if a teammate was just joking around with him, and in return people couldn't tell if he attempted to joke with them. Barry would even treat fans with disrespect. A few times while entering Pirates home stadium, he would tell autograph seekers to fuck off. His teammates would yell at him to treat fans better. They were confused how Bonds would complain about having to sign autographs for people, but he would routinely put himself in situations where people would ask. On road trips while the rest of the team waited on the bus to take them to the stadium before games, Barry stood outside on the sidewalk, waiting for people to ask for an autograph just so he could reject them. During the season, Barry's behavior towards teammates, media, and fans developed tension in the Pittsburgh locker room. Until one game in July, it finally reached a climax. In the fourth inning of a game against the Giants, Barry was on third base with one out. Fans like hit a ground ball to the second baseman, who noticed Barry jogging towards home, and threw the ball to the catcher, and Barry was easily tagged out. This incident enraged Van Slyke, and the rest of the Pirates as well. As he approached Van Slyke, Barry said, What the fuck do you want? Van Slyke responded, Barry, if you ever fucking do that again, embarrass me or this team while I'm in uniform and we're playing together, I'll punch you right on the spot. Play the game the way it's supposed to be played. Barry pushed Van Slyke in the chest an open invitation to start something. Van Slyke clenched his fist, pulled back, and fired a shot right into Barry's nose. He was ready to throw a second punch when seven teammates pushed him aside and decided to jump in and throw their own haymakers at Bonds. It wasn't until Jim Leland came into the frame that he separated Barry from the angry mob of pirates. Word of this fight never got out to the media, but it was an eye-opener for Barry. What does this say when not one of his teammates wanted to defend him from getting the shit kicked out of him? Maybe Barry needed to change. The ultimate reason of why Barry eventually left Pittsburgh was over money. His last few years with the ball club, he was in constant contract negotiations in the offseason. Other players on the team would receive higher contracts even though Barry was better, younger, and more productive. Pittsburgh contemplated over the future with their prodigy outfielder solely of how he acted off the field. What's the point of having a team where your best player makes everyone around him miserable? As a result of contract disputes, Barry would always come into camp in a sour mood. The Pirates used arbitration to weed out every single grievance they had with Barry. They didn't like the way Barry treated rookies, veterans, coaches, and other staff. Basically how he treated everyone. If he wanted a drink from the water fountain, he would push people out of the way just so he could drink first. He would fling his dirty socks on the floor so the equipment manager would have to pick up after him. The 1990 season was the year Barry finally elevated himself into stardom. He won his first MVP, receiving 23 of the 24 votes, the only other vote going to his teammate Bobby Benilla. With this success, Bonds was getting ready to make his postseason debut. 
but this is where Bonds began to develop his reputation as a postseason choker. He only had a measly 167 batting average with one RBI. One game he blamed an early start time to his lack of success. Another he blamed his teammate Jeff King for not being able to play third base due to back spasms. This is an ultimate sin in baseball. Never rip a fellow teammate. King took the high road and didn't respond to Bonds' criticism. Nobody sided with Bonds. Going into the offseason, Bonds and Benilla lost arbitration cases for more money. This made both of them angry at the Pirates. It was one thing to try and save money, but these were the two players that finished first and second in MVP voting the previous season, and you're trying to lowball them? Bonds and his relationship with the Pirates hit a rock bottom on March 4th, when Bonds got into a now infamous shouting match with coach Jim Leland. It was an ordinary day. Bonds and his teammates were in the outfield playing catch when a group of cameras and photographers showed up. Bonds shouted at them, Get out of my face! People around Barry pleaded, Let it go, they're just doing their jobs, they have a right to be here. Barry refused to let it go, yelling, I decide where the cameras stay, now get the fuck out of my face! After a minute or so, Leland arrived on the scene and made a beeline right for Barry. He was tired of babysitting his star outfielder, tired of his antics and how he got away with treating people like shit because he was just good at baseball. Don't fuck with me, Leland shouted just inches from Bond's face. I'm not fucking with you, Bonds replied. Leland fired back. I said, don't fuck with me. I've been kissing your ass for three years and I'm not going to do it again. I'm the manager of this team and I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it. And if you goddamn don't like it, go someplace else. I'm the manager of this fucking team. This incident was a PR nightmare for Barry Bonds. While it rose Jim Leland to legend status by cussing out his star player in front of cameras in the media, people began to see the side of Barry that everyone hated. He was booed during spring training. The endorsement deal he had negotiated with Pepsi was now off the table after the beverage company saw the video of Bonds screaming. Barry hired a public relations agency to help improve his poor image. The strategy actually worked. Bond supported a local children's hospital, participated in a free baseball clinic for inner-city kids, and donated $100 for each home run he hit to troubled youths. People attributed this moment of the new Barry Bonds to his son Nikolai. Barry tried to not be a bad father the way that Bobby was. He made an effort to be a good dad. He would brag about changing diapers, staying up all night to try to get his kids to sleep. This would be the first time the media ever wondered if they were seeing a new Barry Bonds. Stories of him being a problem in the clubhouse were heard less often. However, the 91 season ended in another playoff flop for Bonds. In a seven-game series against the Atlanta Braves' deadly pitching staff, Bonds batted 148 with zero RBIs. The 92 season was the Bonds' last season in Pittsburgh, and probably his most wild with the franchise. His marriage was on the rocks and heading for an ugly end. He cut ties with his longtime agent, Barry also speculated with the media midway through the season on which teams he would be playing for next year. He won his second MVP in three years, and his Pittsburgh Pirates were set up with a rematch against the Atlanta Braves in the postseason. This was a big series for Bonds, and other lackluster postseason performance could impact how much money a team would be willing to give him in free agency. Bonds told his teammates that he was as focused as ever. He proclaimed that this postseason was different from the others. However, the afternoon before one of the games in Atlanta, Barry was spotted house hunting in the city. But this series was no different from the last two years. 
Through the first four games, Barry only had one hit, and the Pirates were down 3-1. to one. Jim Leland put his arms around his star and told him, It doesn't matter if you strike out every time at the plate. You're the center of the offense. It's just a game. Have fun. Play hard. Don't worry. Make these last few games count. This Zen Master treatment from Leland worked, as the Pirates were able to win games 5 and 6 to tie up the series at 3-3. Bonds had two hits in each game, including a home run in Game 6. So it came down to Game 7 to decide which team was going to the World Series. For the most part, the game was going the Pirates' way. In fact, they were going into the bottom of the ninth inning with a 2-0 lead over the Braves. After a leadoff double and a misfielded ball by the second baseman, the Braves had runners on first and third with no outs. Leland finally decided to pull his starter and put in reliever Steve Belinda, even though he had little confidence in his bullpen. The first batter hit a deep ball to left field that Barry Bonds was able to track down at the wall and make a catch for the first out. The runner on third tagged up and scored. Suddenly the score was 2-1. After a walk and then a flyout, the Pirates were just one out from going to the World Series. Meanwhile, Bonds was standing in left field. He was playing unusually deep. Barry's thought was if I play shallow and the ball gets by me, we lose. In center field, Vance like is yelling at Barry, Move in! Move in! Bonds politely responds with a middle finger. The next at bat was the last at bat. The ball was hit on a line drive that flew over the shortstop into left center field. Bonds charged for the ball, picked it up and threw it towards home. Meanwhile, the base runner who was the winning run was a man by the name of Sid Bream. For some reason, the third base coach was telling him to go home. Bream was slow as it is and had five knee operations up to that point. When Bonds picked up the ball, Bream had yet to touch third. Remember Barry's one weak spot, his arm. Barry's throw to home was caught by the catcher a few feet up the first baseline. The catcher dived to tag Bream, but it was too late. The Braves scored, and the Pirates weren't going to the World Series. Had Bonds followed Vance Lyke's advice and played closer in, he would have gotten to the ball a lot sooner, would have been in a position to make a more accurate throw from a shorter distance. There are no guarantees that they would win the game, but it would have given them a better chance. Tim Kirchin of Sports Illustrated even wrote, This loss was perhaps the cruelest in baseball's long history of heartache. And with that, Barry Bonds' career as a Pittsburgh Pirate was over. As the years have passed by, it seemed like Barry Bonds signing and playing the rest of his career with the Giants was a lifelong dream. This was actually far from the case. In the winter of 1992, Bonds narrowed down his list of possible teams to eight. None of them were the San Francisco Giants. There were many reasons why Barry didn't want to play in San Francisco. There were many reports and rumors that the team was going to be sold and moved to St. Petersburg. Another reason he would not want to sign with San Francisco is that he would regularly have to play in front of his dad. While in Pittsburgh, Barry would always come up with some sort of illness or injury if they traveled to San Francisco. His 226 batting average at the city's ballpark was by far his lowest hitting average for Barry at any venue, not to mention the Giants were literally one of the worst teams in baseball at this point in time. One after another, Barry's top free agent destinations either signed other players, such as the Braves, who signed Greg Maddox, while other teams, such as the Padres, Angels, and Dodgers, never even made an offer for Barry Bonds. 
The Yankees made a run at Barry, but he rejected their five-year, $36 million offer. Meanwhile, the Giants were in talks with having their team sold to a group led by Peter McGowan, and they were going to keep the team in San Francisco. To make a long story short, McGowan actually signed Bonds to a six-year, $43 million deal. Things seemed just about normal for Bonds when he arrived at the Giants for spring training. He immediately gave the Bay Area media the cold shoulder. He also did a classic Barry Bonds intro to each one of his ball club's pitchers by going up to each one individually, poking them in the chest, and saying, I own you. I own you. I own you. Without so much as a hello beforehand. Bonds also sported a transformed body. A barreled chest, thick forearms, strong legs, and 8% body fat. His goal was to become a 50 home run, 50 stolen base kind of a player. Barry Bonds was the most exciting and talented baseball player the Bay Area had seen since Willie Mays. On way to winning his third MVP, Bonds helped the Giants win 103 games in his first year. One thing that happened to Bonds as soon as he got to the Giants, and it continued during his entire tenure with the ball club, was his treatment from management and executives was far different from the other players. They would let Barry get away with anything and give him special treatment. Instead of riding on the same bus as his teammates, he would ride on the bus with the team executives. On the road, Barry refused to tell his teammates which room he was staying in, and as he had done with each one of his teams prior, he refused to stretch pregame. Bond's fantastic season took a huge turn off the field when police probed his house early September. Bonds claimed that he was in St. Louis at the time of the altercation, but he was indeed at his home with his wife. Details of the incident were ugly. Barry's wife, son, said that following an argument over birth control and the quality of their housekeeper's work, Barry grabbed her around the neck, kicked her, and threw her partially down the stairs. Police cited lack of evidence as reason not to file charges. When told that the altercation was probably going to go public, Sun begged the police to leave. After the season, Bond's play began to diminish, and so did the teams. They dropped a 7.5 game lead over Atlanta and lost the division at a tiebreaker. The breaking point of Bond's marriage is when Sun got word that Barry had an affair with a porn star. She sued Bond's and claimed that not only did Barry have sex with her, but that she was also carrying Barry Bond's unborn baby. It later turned out that she was lying about being pregnant, but Bond's attorney did put out a statement where he admitted that Bond's did have sex with her. They ended up settling out of court. Fast forward to 1996, Barry was having his most impressive statistical season of his career, showing up to training camp resembling a defensive back and benching 315 pounds. However, the Giants had Barry Bond's on the trading block. Ownership was worried about how their star player would have frequent confrontations with other Giants, including a fight with another player that resulted in Barry's sparkling earring to get ripped out and a confrontation in St. Louis where Barry pushed a respected reporter from USA Today. But the Giants demanded a king's ransom for Bonds, and no one wanted to give up a lot of capital for the headache Bonds would bring with him. Bonds set records for walks and intentional walks, records he would routinely shatter as his career progressed. But with the Giants losing 94 games and finishing in last place, Barry had another statistic on his mind. He wanted to join Jose Canseco as the only two players to hit 40 home runs and steal 40 bases in a single season. In doing this, Barry played selfish baseball. 
stealing bases in odd times. Like if there was two outs and the winning run was on third, Barry would steal anyway. Barry was selfish. He only wanted to play for Barry. He only wanted to talk to his teammates if they wanted to talk about Barry. In 97, there was perhaps a new Barry Bonds. Suddenly he decided it was time to be friendly, give more interviews. He would even acknowledge his teammates on occasion and spoke glowingly of the franchise to the press. He even befriended a leukemia patient. Barry was compassionate with the young boy. After finding out that he may need a bone marrow transplant, Barry registered as a donor. When Barry did things like this, it wasn't for the cameras. He often did things like this without the knowledge of the media. He could have easily brought cameras along with him and have the press publish his good deeds he would do off the field to improve his image. But that's not what he wanted to do. He didn't want to be cheered for kindness. Before the 1998 season, Bonds married his second wife, Elizabeth Watson. She was an exotic dancer. She had dated former baseball players before, and had even had an affair with Chicago Bulls superstar Michael Jordan. Bonds was never faithful in either of his marriages. He constantly had an affair with Kimberly Bell, a woman Bonds would spend years secretly seeing. He would pay for her to come on road trips, and sometimes would even have the Giants pay for her rooms. This is also a woman who would testify several years later, pertaining Barry's testicle size and his perjury case. But we'll get to that later. In 1998, Bonds was once again an awesome baseball player. After starting to be nice in 97, he went back to his old ways after he got into a hitting slump that he blamed the media for. But Barry was phenomenal in 1998. He was such a dangerous hitter. There was an occasion where he was intentionally walked with the bases loaded, scoring a run. That's how dangerous he was. Rather give up a run than have Barry jack one out. Even though Bonds was awesome, he wasn't the talk of baseball world in 1998. Everyone was fixated with the home run chase between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. This made Barry incredibly jealous, especially when he became the first player in the history of baseball to hit 400 home runs and steal 400 bases. But no one cared. It wasn't even first page news. Everyone was following the superhuman Slammin' Sammy and Big Mac regularly go back and forth in the home run chase daily. It was a secret in baseball for years. Every player knew that McGuire and Sosa were juiced. This killed Barry. Sure, these guys could hit 70 home runs, but they aren't the overall player that Bonds was. Could they steal bases like him? Could they play the outfield like him? Were they as good of an overall hitter as Barry was? No, of course not. After Sammy Sosa was named the MVP and outplayed Bonds in a wild card play-in game, Bonds had had enough. He was tired of being underappreciated. He was the best player in baseball for years now, and there he was, getting overshadowed by these guys who were taking steroids and a cocktail of HGH to get ahead. After the headlines were pointing out another Bonds playoff failure, he was done. Next year, Bonds was going to do what Sosa and McGuire did to get attention, fame, admiration, and respect. Barry Bonds, the best player in baseball, was going to start taking performance-enhancing drugs. Little did Barry know this decision wasn't going to give him the fame and admiration he so craved. It would eventually turn Bonds into baseball's biggest villain, and it would turn him into the face of baseball's steroid era. Okay, that was part one of the Barry Bonds 
narrative. Please come back. Tune in next week to listen to part two, where we are going to dive into the later part of his career, which was where he began his heavy steroid use, and he became baseball's ultimate villain. As always, thank you so much for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Go follow on Twitter and Instagram, JWS Detective. Go back and listen to old Sports Detective podcasts that we've done. We've done about 20 so far. Barry Bonds Part 2 coming next week. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. Huh. <laughs>